0: So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. You gotta have incredible talent
1: at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such
2: an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing.
1: There are so many easy ways. I have no idea what to do.
2: Sorry, we made a mistake. But
0: you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment.
2: Stuff that just seems
3: absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it.
1: This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. After word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. Hello Summit, I'm Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host for Masters of Scale Live at Summit LA. Over the next 60 minutes, I'm going to try to prove the theory that every founder has a second purpose, something outside their main business they're trying to get done in the world. Every successful company is like a Trojan horse, carrying the founder's other purpose forward. And I want to help you visualize what I mean. We all know the story of the original Trojan horse. An enormous, towering wooden horse on wheels appears at the gates of ancient Troy. It was sent by the Greeks as a peace offering during a brutal ten-year war. But inside that horse, lying in wait, was the great warrior Odysseus and an elite team of 30 Greek warriors. The horse is wheeled into the city. The soldiers wait until nightfall They sneak out of the horse and open the gates to the rest of the army. And that was it for Troy. Okay, so bloodthirsty soldiers carrying out a massacre doesn't exactly speak to the higher purpose of business. Neither do the Trojan horse viruses that your IT department fights. (laughs) But imagine instead the perimeter you're trying to breach isn't the wall of a sovereign city or the firewall of an unsuspecting Internet user. Instead... You're trying to break through a different kind of wall, a
3: wall of systematic prejudice, intractable disease, lazy assumptions, joyless joyless existence. existence.
1: Imagine the army you want to unleash from the horse's belly isn't there to inflict violence, but to tear down walls that limit the human experience. A Trojan horse is only as good or bad as its intended purpose. And today we'll be studying the way that a business and a career can be a kind of virtuous Trojan horse, a well-built construction that carries the founder's second purpose forward.
3: your choir singing
1: joyfully as you say important things yes uh thank you masters of scale choir i appreciate that now on to the show
3: read. Oh, we're sorry to interrupt you we just wanted to say we think the theory is very interesting
1: thank you choir really appreciate that now please on with the show i have a very important guest to introduce I'm going to step outside the live recording for just a moment to fill you in on who Robert F. Smith is, because you may not know his name yet. Robert runs a private equity firm called Vista. They've acquired hundreds of companies, mostly software companies, and never lost money on a deal. Despite undeniable success, Robert has flown mostly below the radar until this year. And for that story, we'll return to the live program. Robert is one of the most successful investors in America, and he first hit national attention this spring when he gave a commencement speech at Morehouse, a historically black college. During his speech, Robert announced he'd take on the student debt of every graduating senior, and this was just the most visible sign of the second purpose underlying his career. I want to welcome to the stage Robert F. Smith. As you may know, Robert, I have this theory I'm hoping we can prove together. Okay. I believe that successful businesses can serve as a Trojan horse, carrying a founder's second purpose forward. When I look at your career, I see a second purpose, Hmm. and to start us off, I'd like to share some of your own words back to you. A quick note, the clip you're about to hear came from a TV interview Robert did with David Rubenstein on The David Rubenstein Show, which I think you might enjoy. This clip starts with Robert reflecting on the fact that his mother took him, as an infant, to the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his most famous speech. Chris, can you uh,
4: play this clip for us? I think the impact of her bringing me here. I
3: have a dream
4: For us to understand that our community stood for something, our community was striving for something, and it was important that we were a part of it. And I think that's part of my soul, which is I have to give back and, and help my community move forward in this wonderful country called America. The greatest pleasure is to liberate a human spirit. And when you're able to liberate a human spirit and see that spirit really become its best self, that is the greatest thrill on the planet. The problems I want to solve now are an equalization of opportunity for African-Americans to help them onboard into what is the commercial enterprise that is America. How do we create sustainable career opportunities for people, not just a job, not just a place to go work,
3: that's the end of the story. That's really cool. That's That's um,
1: so, in listening to that, it seems to really express your second purpose—to uh, liberate the human spirit and see it become its best self—and also equalize opportunity for African Americans and other groups. Have I got that right?
4: Uh, I think you do. Um, the beauty of, of growing up in a community is you have a chance to really participate in the values of that community. Uh, I was fortunate in growing up in a community that, that thought about each other. Uh, they thought about you know, the, the children in that community, the elders in that community, and those who were working. And we worked together. I saw that reflected in the way that when we'd come home from school, their parents were working, that other parents who were not working would take those young kids, not just welcome them into their home, but assist them with their homework, ensure they had nutritious snacks uh, until their parents came home. Uh, I saw it when it was time for me to start my, my businesses of mowing lawns and shoveling snow, that after I did my parents, I had to go do Mrs. Busby's and Mr. Moore's free before I could go make money by doing other yard work. Um, and it showed me that you have a responsibility uh, to your community in ways that, that you have to constantly think about it and it has to be inculcated in your very fabric and in your very being, not as an activity that you do. So the advantage I think that I had in growing up in that community was you know, I, I found that joy and, and that joy comes quite naturally through that, through that process. So you grew up in Colorado in an
1: African-American neighborhood, and as a child, you were bused to a white school as part of the desegregation
4: efforts. Can you take us back to that bus? Sure. How old were you? Uh, bus 13, and I was seven years old. Um, it was first grade. My first day... Um, I remember I had to walk down to the end of the, my brother, older brother's with me, walk down to the end of the block, get on the bus and drive for you know, 35, 40 minutes, it seemed like forever, uh, to now walk into a community of students that looked nothing like the kids I, I was accustomed to. Um, but like all things, the thing we figured out was, guess what, we had more like than we had different. We all like to do things like run fast and have fun and tell jokes, and, and over time, you know, we realized that we were now a community of students, and we didn't see each other in, in through the lens of color. We didn't see in other lens of you know economic position, um, but we saw each other as friends. And I just remember going to you know birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, all those sorts of things. Over as time went on, uh, as we grew up, uh, and it created a wonderful connectivity as a human and as a human being. Those are the things that helped me realize that, you know, again, we are more alike than different. Uh, That was a big part of my upbringing. My generation is actually the first generation of African Americans to have all their rights uh, in this country after, you know, multiple generations of being here. Uh, Civil Rights Act 1965, I'm born a few years before that. And the dynamic that, that challenged me. Later as I found out that there were a number of buses that were to really you know, force this desegregation process in the schools and somebody burned one third of the buses before that all got started. So only one bus came to my neighborhood and only four or five blocks of kids got an opportunity to be on that bus and it was of course bus number 13. Um, and when the we, lucky bus. The lucky bus, it, it actually was because all the kids who were on that bus, when I look at their lives now, on a relative basis versus the kids who are just one block away, you see a vast difference in, you know, social economic progress, uh, in educational opportunities, in, you know, the strength to what they bring to the communities they live in now. Not all of them live in that same community. And as I've kept in touch with them, as, as childhood friends do, you see a stark difference from kids who are maybe two and three and four blocks away or eight blocks away who didn't get an opportunity to get on that one bus. And so you start to realize the importance of fundamental education and, you know, caring communities that realize it's important to educate all the citizenry in a way that they can then contribute. Because if you don't, then they no longer contribute. And then you have issues you now have to, to deal with in different ways as opposed to enabling young people to be effective citizens in their communities.
1: Exactly. Totally. Um, So when I I was doing a little bit of research for this interview, uh, I happened upon this story that you know, but I want to ask it for you because I want to make sure everyone's heard it. Sure. So when you were in high school, you applied for an internship at the legendary Bell Labs. (laughs) Right. Well, you didn't just apply,
4: you applied applied and applied and applied and applied, right. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So I actually had a chance to take a computer class in high school. Uh, I was a junior in high school and starting to learn programming, et cetera. And I asked my, my teacher at the time, I said, well, how does this actually work? He so, said, oh, it's run by this thing. It's by a transistor. And I said, well, who, who came up with this thing? And he said, well, these folks at Bell Laboratories. I said, well, is there one around here there was actually one in Denver? And so I called them and I said, hey, you know, I'd like to get a summer internship at Bell Labs. And this was in January. And they said, that's great if you're between your junior and senior year in college. Why don't you come uh, and apply? I said, listen, I'm a junior in high school. I'm getting all A's in my AP classes. It's just like being in college. Um, (laughs) They, they, of course, said, no, it isn't. Uh, So I called the human resources director every day for two weeks. Uh, She stopped taking the call after the second day. Um, And I left a message, and I called every Monday for five months. And I got a call back in June. And my dad says, hey, some woman from Bell Labs called. You know, once you to call her back. I give her a call back. And she says, listen, can't guarantee anything, but why don't you come down and interview. Uh, I had one suit. I had a 69 Plymouth satellite, and I had $4 worth of gas, and I got there. And I got the job. And when I asked her, I said, well, what happened? She said, An M- a student from MIT didn't show up. And so I'm sure, you know, that persistence left him with some impression that this is someone who really wants this job. And I wanted to ensure that they understood how much I was grateful for it. And so not only did I work every day, but you know, Saturdays and Sundays. And the most important thing that came out of it for me was this lesson that I like to impart is the joy of figuring things out. You know, my mentor was a guy by the name of Vic Hauser, distinguished member of technical staff, had I think 35 patents to his name, a PhD in what was called solid state physics at the time. Just absolutely brilliant. And we shared an office. The importance of mentorship, elder, you know, youth, yes. and uh, it was quite fun because, you know, I said, well, what, what am I going to do this summer? He said, well, we have this thing, it's called an operational amplifier, it's failing in the field, and your job is to figure out, you know, how it failed, and, you know, how to fix it. And if you have any questions, you should ask me. There's a library down the hall, and you've got the full resources of Bell Laboratories. And he kind of turned around. and uh, for a while that struck me it's like wow that's kind of rude and then I said okay let me go down and figure out what an operational amplifier is what it's supposed to do what this isn't doing and and then I'd come back and I'd ask him a question okay well explain this to me and he would literally get on the whiteboard for two hours Hmm. and I would ask questions and he said do you have any more questions I said nope I'll be back tomorrow And then I'd go and figure out and get more information and come back and ask more questions. And turns out I was a a high school summer student. I ended up with the best project and the best result out of all the college students that were there. And it was because of the process. It was because of the true mentorship and engagement that I had with Vic that made all the difference to help me understand the joy of really figuring out things as opposed to somebody telling you, you know, how it's done. Totally awesome. Yeah. It was a great experience.
1: On most episodes of (laughs) Masters of Scale, I start out by asking my guests about their formative years, not just out of general interest, but because there are often events in our early lives that foreshadow where our paths take us. And of course, you can hear in Robert, his persistence, his problem solving, his curiosity, all indicators for success. But I think you can also see the glimmers of that second purpose, that desire to give everyone an equal opportunity to find and fulfill their potential. Not all leaders have that. Some won't find their second purpose until much later. And they might already be on their second or third venture before they do. Think Bill Gates, coming to his foundation work much later in life. But the seeds for Robert's second purpose in life were there early. At this point in the program, my interview with Robert jumps forward around 20 years at the live event I asked the master's scale choir to fill us in on what happened in Robert's life between his Bell Labs internship and founding his company Vista. The live audience could see the lyrics as the choir sang. So for you podcast listeners, let me quickly fill you in. Robert attends Cornell and becomes a chemical engineer. He earns patents. He gets an MBA and becomes an investment banker. He helps Goldman Sachs start their San Francisco office and is part of the team that brings Steve Jobs back to Apple. And then Robert founds Vista, and our story picks up again. Here's a taste of the song. Oh,
3: no, no, he's the Robert man. Mr. Ordinate. Oh, no, no He's Robin Man Robin Man who bought Steve Jobs back to Apple, you Goldman Sachs ain't the kind of place to change the world No, it In fact, it's cold as hell only one thing Robert could do as a story
1: unfold. That parody got a standing ovation in the room, by the way. We'll share it with you in full at the end of the episode. Which brings us to the next question I had for Robert. One of the things I find fascinating about Vista is the way they hire. They have every incoming employee take a test, which helps them identify hidden abilities, particularly for technology and sales both of which are in great demand in Vista companies. This test has been known to identify hidden tech talent in people who were previously working relatively menial jobs. I wanted to learn more. So you started Vista, and Vista owns a number of tech companies. I want to dig into one specific aspect of Vista that's related to your Trojan horse, and that's how you hire. So all of Vista companies need to hire technologists. And if I understand correctly, at Vista you've developed a unique way to identify people with an aptitude for technology and a way to help them unlock their potential. What is the system? How did you come up with it? What makes it special?
4: Yeah, I, I, so the, the way I'd like to characterize it, it is really thinking about, you know, business performance enhancement through talent acquisition, not just an aptitude test. So, so you wanna find people who have certain attributes for certain jobs, kind of a lock and key, and you, know, you want to find people who, are, as a group, you're, you want your sales group to accentuate certain attributes and diminish certain attributes in the group as a whole or in your services organization. And just not to give away all the secrets, but one way to think about it, for instance, in a customer service organization, you want people who are patient. You want people who like to teach. Uh, and you don't want people who are necessarily assertive or combative in, in their personality profiles. Whereas you may want to have a little bit more of that in your sales organization. And what we do at Vista is think about how do you deliver that at scale systemically? Um, and we now, as folks probably know, have about 68 portfolio companies, well over 70,000 employees. and. We have about one, every 30 months or so, uh, about 1.3 million people apply for jobs across our portfolios. About a third of them opt into taking you know, the, the, these, these tests and we hire about four or 5,000 uh, to fit in there because we want them to be successful and to be happy
1: so this focus on talent from the very beginning say is there like a story or two or the comes <laughs> or to, yes or 5000 yeah. Yeah. but one of the ones that will make it more tangible for people like like we find this kind of person and and this is the kind of yeah. role that they find within a vista company
4: yeah so i mean we we've got we've got a few um, i have a person uh, who i'm thinking about this young man uh was actually you know graduated with a ba in in, I think it was psychology, and you know, was basically a bartender and a juggler. That's how he kind of made his money after psychology majors typically have to do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, came in, took the exam, found out he would be a great sales leader and said, well, I've never done sales before. So we trained him and tried, and now is running an international sales organization for one of our biggest companies. And I want you to think about that, right? So from making, you know, $4 a, in tips, a, you know, a, a juggle uh, to <laughs> now running, you know, international sales for a very large, you know, multinational corporation, that person would have never got looked at by probably any other software company or tech company. but." You know, our system, we think, creates an opportunity for inclusion and meritocracy uh, and training to develop what might be your innate skill and talent and how it fits within you know, software companies. So. You know, we have a CEO, to give you an example, and she runs one of our uh, uh, great software companies who came in almost 10 years ago, and she was in a, a services type of role, tech tech services. You know, we did our evaluation, so, you know, you know, highly talented, capable, good work ethic, all those sort of things. And so we put her in our Accelerate program, and, you know, she did well in that. And then we, we, we moved her from there into our HPLP program and then a Pinnacle program. And so 10 years later, this person who came in as basically a, you know, a, a supervisory type level in technical services is now the CEO of a software company. Mm-hmm. And she is performing spectacularly well. Right.
1: It it strikes me that this the scale process and methodology also really helps with the kind of the Trojan horse theory that we're doing the secondary purpose, because um, aren't you also finding that it's unlocking
4: the spirit, the human potential in these uh, underrepresented communities? You got it. So with many folks that, you know, when you're coming out of college or you may have ended up in a job and you're you're kind of there and you don't because it's a job you got but you don't necessarily know if that's some, if you would be better suited for something else so the overlay we have across all of our companies is now development something that's i think lost in a lot of companies so that is a dynamic that morphs the culture of an organization and every one of our companies is interesting one example is you know the net promoter scores external kind of read on how your customers like all of them always go up dramatically I'm convinced it's not just because we provide better services and solutions and they're faster. I think they're finding that the employees who are engaging with the customers actually are happier because they feel like they have a purpose. They feel like they found more of their own purpose, and they can execute that purpose within the company. What we're doing is preparing them to be promoted, preparing them to be leaders, and preparing them to be highly effective managers and supervisors in the company. And when you invest in people in that way, you typically get greater output. You know, that's what I call, you know, the liberation of the spirit. And that comes in that context as they see that you're actually investing in their development. So we do some things that are very different than, than other private equity firms. And frankly, I think, you know, we do some things different than what you see in other software companies. And not surprising, our results, I think, reflect that. So it's, it is a systemic way, we think, to enhance the environment of every one of our companies so people feel that they can liberate their talents and capabilities and have a better fit.
1: I had a couple of comments, because part of how you get a much better uh, kind of uh, diversity and inclusion is not just relying on the resume, right. but actually exactly. relying on the – say another few sentences so that the sure. entrepreneurs sure. can understand. Sure. I, what... I
4: think one of, the, one of the critical things that we do is – and we're moving much more to what I call the you know, the, 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 the non-biased application process, right? So. You know, as we start to input, it's, it's we're looking for certain skills, talents, capabilities. I kind of don't care what school you go to. If you if you do well on our exam and you actually have the personality profile to fit well within a software company, we we want to interview. We want to we want we want to figure out if we can develop uh, you to, to 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 work within our companies. And you know, for entrepreneurs out there, look if if you have certain people that come from just you know one community and, and you know one fraternity or sorority, you know you're going to have a very limited set of of, of inputs you know, for what will be a product, hopefully, that that, that satisfies a much, you know, broader uh, opportunity of, of customer base. Now, if you're saying, hey, I'm only doing something really niche, okay, maybe that's fine. But, you know, most people are looking at global products in that context. And you want to have, you know, global input. You want, you want, you know, gender, racial, ethnic, you know, diversity in all of the thinking processes and the delivery processes. And we found that to be probably one of the more effective. One of our companies in Minnesota... Um, which we bought two years ago, they were doing well, 20 plus percent top line growth, et cetera. They adopted our hiring processes. They've increased the the number of women that not only they see, but they hire now by 50% and African-Americans by 100%. And guess what? They're growing at to 40% top line now. Yep. Okay. So there is a correlation. And, you know, most people just don't have the courage because you kind of hire what you know, what you see, as opposed to building solutions that can actually help you scale your business more effectively uh, and frankly more, more, more efficiently through different methods. Yep. Awesome. So
1: uh, Robert, there's another moment where I'm gonna share a thought with the audience and then see what you think about okay. it. Okay. In listening to Robert describe Vista's hiring test, I want you to notice how Vista's business is enhanced by Robert's second purpose of equalizing opportunity and liberating overlooked human potential. And this is important. You can only combine your second purpose with your company when the two are mutually reinforcing. Otherwise, you risk jeopardizing both your goals.
4: Robert, how do you think about this? I think with, with all businesses, you have to think about you know, what, is, what is sustainable. And you know, since we just had our, our beautiful rendition by our choir, uh, I'll use the, the metaphor of harmony. You know, you, you have to think about making sure that you're integrating harmony in the movement of that company. You know, companies, they are organisms. Those organisms have parts to them that contribute. Um, and they are, you know, your people and your intellectual property and, you know, the, the vision and the mission and the ideas about what it is that you're looking to com- create. And you have to look for, for, like all things, when you're sitting back as a, as a senior executive or even as a manager, if you don't feel like you've got the harmony of purpose and, and intent reflected in the output of product or service, you really need to take the time and rethink it. Um, and then redesign your organization or redesign the composition of your teams. Uh, and you've got to really find that and feel that. Um, and it, you, you know if something's not working well, um, and rather than say, well, let me just push that through and I'll deal with it later because that just creates a bun- – in the world of software, that creates what we call technical debt, yep. right, which is the biggest bane of, of, of enterprise software companies. It, it is more important to actually take the time to sit back and think. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face with every one of our senior executives is to get them out of the mode of reacting and get them in the mode of, of, of thinking, and saying, take the extra time to think about what we call as the engineered solution, which is more harmonious, continuous in its its operation, and and the output has fewer errors as opposed to just forcing it through and hoping it'll be okay on the other end. Uh, That's what gets most entrepreneurs and and companies in trouble, because they build mountains of technical debt that they then can't service, which which creates a, a, a group of customers who are dissatisfied with what it is that they're expecting and what it is that you're delivering. And that's what creates the faltering of businesses. Um, so part of creates an opportunity also to, to go and, and engage with those businesses as Vista. Um, but I really think about that holistic approach to business. And when you do that, you have the chance now to, you know, not only liberate the creative spirit in those companies, uh, but frankly, a, a higher output that then can impact their communities in more effective ways. Because if the more those companies are thriving and the people are excited about being there, they actually can give back to the communities in many ways. And you know, for us, we leverage coding classes and those sort of things ensure our companies go and participate and ensure that they're participating in what I call the stabilization of the communities, just like the community that I came from.
1: We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner.
2: But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the <laughs> newspaper.
0: So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business' Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook.
1: Okay, now... For one of the most delightful things I've seen all year. Robert, this is of course, the commencement speech <laughs> you gave at the graduating class of Morehouse College this spring. Chris, can you play that video please?
4: So I was a small, among a small number of kids from my neighborhood who were bused across town to a high performing, predominantly white school in Southeast Denver. That policy of busing only lasted to my fifth grade year, when intense protests and political pressure brought the end to forced busing. But those five years dramatically changed my life. Everything about my life changed because of those few short years. But the window closed for others just as fast as it opened for me. And that's the story of the Black experience in America getting a fleeting glimpse of opportunity and success just before the window is slammed shut. We all have the responsibility to liberate others so that they can become their best selves in human rights, the arts, in business, and in life. The fact is, as the next generation of African-American leaders, you don't wanna just be on the bus. You wanna own it, you wanna drive it, and you wanna pick up as many people along the way as you can. Men of Morehouse, you are surrounded by a community of people who have helped you arrive at this sacred place and on this sacred day. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. Now, I've got the alumni over there, and this is a challenge to you, alumni. This is my class, 2019. and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Now, I know my class will make sure they pay this forward. I want my class to look at these alumnus, these beautiful Morehouse brothers. And let's make sure every class has the same opportunity going forward. Yes, indeed.
1: This was another standing ovation in the room, by the way. So obviously, that was such a powerful moment, and I believe I'm right in thinking this is one of the first interviews you've done since that commencement speech. That is right. So why did you choose to make that amazing gesture at Morehouse?
4: A lot has to do with, again, how I grew up. I'm kind of choked up a little bit. Thanks for that wonderful applause. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, again, it's coming from a community that cared about each other. Uh, I just actually, as you know, arrived from South Africa a few hours ago and was reminded of that by uh, a beautiful, talented woman who was actually the widow of Stephen Bilko. And we had lunch. And we talked about this concept of uh, Ubuntu, which is the love of humanity. If you think about philanthropy, is the love of humanity and when you think about your community how do you love your community you share in the bounty with that community in some cases it's the wisdom it's the teachings In some cases it's the time it's nourishment in some cases in some cases it's a bed for someone to sleep on or gentle words of encouragement and When I think about my community, uh, which has multiple layers to it, and I thought about that Morehouse community of these young African-American men who have an unfair burden in this country on so many different levels. And I thought, how can I help them with burdens that I can help with? One way is to alleviate the debt not only for them, on them, but the debt that most of them are also responsible on their families. And to give them a chance to liberate themselves and their communities through their actions, as opposed to walking out forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt, having to take a job to service the debt, and twenty years later not having had a chance to really deliver what, they, what their hearts and minds say are the right first purpose into the community that they came from. So... Yep. I, thank you. I, I told these, these young brothers, I said, now you figure out how you're going to practice Ubuntu. How are you going to now figure out how you're going to deliver back to commu- their community? And I hope they choose, a quarter of them decide that they're going to be teachers and teach programming and engineering in their communities. And I, think, I hope a quarter of them become brilliant chemical engineers because I like them, generally. Um, <laughs> But engineers. We might get a song later. Yeah, we homes. might get yeah. a song about them later. I, I hope another quarter of them become doctors and deal with the health care disparities that our community deals with uh, in this country. And I hope a quarter of them become politicians and use their strength and capacity to change policies so that we don't have to have only one bus in that neighborhood. Yeah, amen.
1: And one of the things that we were talking about as we were kind of backstage and getting ready is kind of the, 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 the differences of opportunity, the, the, the access to the American dream, and, and when you have the ability to play offense versus defense. Yeah. And, you know, part of what you were doing was saying, look, I'm going to give you a chance. To play offense. To play offense, right? To play it forward and play offense. So say a little bit about the offense yeah. and defense.
4: You know, we were talking about this, and, you know, Reed and I were, were back backstage saying, okay, you know, here we have two, you know, successful people, one of them more handsome than the other. Um, (laughs) But clearly the other one's better dressed. Uh, (laughs) That's still you too. (laughs) Yeah, no. Oh, you're just being kind. Um, And when I think about, you know, when you grow up African American and a male in this country, you spend so much of your time playing defense. And you and I talked about that, you know, some of your college friends just in the way that they had to present themselves just to go out, you know, driving down the street, you know, going to a job interview, you know, being in, in an environment that is very, very different. You know, I wasn't as familiar with this then, but, but I got more familiar with what I call it the look. And the folks in the community know when you walk in and somebody doesn't know that you are black and you get this look. And the surprise... And then they'll kind of look at the other person if you're with somebody else, and they're having a hard time reconciling you, know, you in the context of who you are, being black in that room, and you know, the leader of the organization, what it might be. Um, and so you have, you, 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 you have to work on a whole different set of skills to, to progress and be effective. And it's a whole different burden. Uh, and look, everybody has burdens to but this is one I know that, that I'm uniquely familiar with. I still feel and see and experience every single day uh, in in different contexts. And it's important to have a system that you can draw on that gives you the strength to deal with that, because it comes from institutions, from people, from you know governments, and you just you just have to know that you have to play so much defense, which keeps you from playing more offense. And if I can enable some communities to now liberate their potential, and their beautiful creative potential to now play a whole lot more offense, uh, I think we're gonna see an acceleration in this country of, of opportunity for everyone. That's, that's how I think about it. And. Again, look, I just want to continue to do my part to make that happen.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is really important is it's easy for you know folks with my skin color to say, oh, that's the system's problem and everything else. We're just saying it's white males. Go ahead. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Say, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the system should be fixed. But actually, in fact, I think on these kinds of problems, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah. Right. And so part of the, the thing is, how should we all be thinking about how do we enable more of, you know, this these 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 uh, potentially communities? As I think, borrowing your language, embargoed from the American
4: Dream, right. to play offense. What yeah. are the things we should be doing? How do we pay it forward? I think we have to 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 actively construct on ramps and in. You know, this is going to be a little bit of a long narrative, but I'm going to compact it as much as I can. The the way I think about it is. You know, the the opportunity today is a utilization of computing power to create businesses, you know, jobs, insights, all those sort of things. I mean, that's, this, is a, this is this whole thing, concept of this fourth industrial revolution uh, dynamic. You know, when you and I were coming up, computing power was controlled. Today, it is ubiquitous. Because of that, all of the rest of the planet now has access to it, and because of that... And we, of course, bring people here, educate them here, and then make them go back to their home country so we actually lose intellectual property that way. But there's going to be a massive innovative, a innovative dynamic that is going to be you know, exponentially bigger in mass and scale than what we can produce here as 370, 380 million people. You, you, you see what I mean? And if we say, okay, we're going to take 380 million people, and guess what? We're only going to count half of them, okay, first of all, by gender, okay, and then we're going to only count a certain amount because of race and ethnicity. And now that's your engine that you've got to compete against billions of other people who now have access to these same tools and capacity. Yes. We will lose. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yep. Amen. So what we have to do is enable all of our citizenry to be effective in a global economic construct, which means creating on-ramps for those who don't have, in some cases, it's on-ramps to just basic education like we're talking about. And of course, in some cases, it's food and healthcare, so you can get them to a point where they can actually be educated and be supported. And then what we have to do, you know, we, certain things we can do, is actually drive those on-ramps of opportunity through internships, through mentorships, through, you know, dynamics that will accelerate Our opportunity to participate in a a robust global economy where we will be outnumbered very shortly because we actually are, okay, but potentially outgunned because of the capacity, computing capacity is almost equalized, okay, and it's going to be outstripped pretty quickly. So. That's what we have to do. So that's kind of point one. Point two, what we have to do is understand that we are in this together. You know, we all came from the southern tip of Africa, you know, 115,000 years ago, whatever the number is. And guess what? Yeah, we evolved in kind of different ways. But, you know, we are humanity. And we have to use our humanity to keep our planet safe so that we can actually evolve as humans, right? So, I mean, there's a whole dynamic that we have to be thoughtful about and have to take leadership in that is real, it's direct, it's deliberate, and we have to be intentional about it. And that's intentional in policy, intentional in action, not just government action and community action, but corporate action. Okay, thinking about how do you drive sustainability in everything that we do, holistically. My biggest asset at Vista, ultimately, is our people. So I have to have sustainable environments for their development and growth, okay? And others have to think about, you know, sustainability and the natural resources that they're consuming, okay? In our industry, it's power. So now we're thinking, okay, how do we create sustainable power dynamics around all of the servers? Okay, so those, but we have to be intentional about it, thoughtful about it, and then be deliberate about driving specific actions to make those changes. And to me, That's where we have to go to ensure that we have survival and in the ability to thrive as humanity on this planet.
1: Amen. Um, Indeed. So one of the things that uh, when we were talking backstage that uh, kind of shocked me and saddened me um, was... Uh, some of the awful responses you've had to your Morehouse philanthropy, <laughs> yeah. right? Because it's this amazing thing saying, look, I'm trying to enable the next generation. We're trying to, 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 to play offense, to pay it forward, and to unlock potential. And yet um, part of the experience of, of, of being a, Leader of color is that you also get this weird blowback. Right. Like, share a little bit with what's going on so people know that because it yeah. was so shocking.
4: You know, like all things, you know, I, I, as, you, as you got to know me a little bit, I don't like to really talk about the negative stuff that happens because I don't want to give it any energy, in all honesty. You just got to, right? Um, you know, it, you know it, 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 it suffices to say there are a lot of people who don't want to see you know, people of color still, or, you know, accelerate in, in capturing, you know, opportunity for themselves and a community. And it, and it baffles the heck out of me because I'm saying, you know, you worry about these communities all, you know, well, if you enable those communities to be self-sustaining, you won't have to worry about those communities because they're trying to get resources to just feed their kids and educate their families and all those sort of things. I mean, to, to me, that's a dynamic. But yeah, there is visceral blowback uh that i get all the time and you'd be surprised from where and you know you and i chatted about this uh and it is it is frustrating on the one hand on the other hand it is it is empowering and saying i know i still have i know that i have a job to do uh and i've learned that i also have a role to play you know i had a, a dear friend just pass away today bernard tyson who I just love so dearly. He he was CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and he and I talked about this. He was one of only three Black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and he and I talked about this recently a couple of weeks ago. He we said, "You know, we we realize what we have to do, and it is to drive and set examples and to liberate um, people, and a lot has to do with our people." and it's a heavy burden. And you know, the past is littered with a whole bunch of folks that look like Bernard and I, who at some point in time, like, okay, I'm just, it's enough. Okay. But I also realize I, I have to, I, I owe that to my community. <laughs> I owe that to my mother, uh, my grandmother and grandfather and great, great. I mean, those eight generations cause they survived enough for me to be here. You know ubuntu i am here because of them yeah so i know that i now have to to drive that forward with my last breath yeah well uh and uh part
1: of the reason i wanted you to share that and thank you is because it's part of the highlighting of why it's important that we all get in this fight with you right there's not just you i mean we honor the the courage the tenacity the the grit the insight uh, the application from the business world to the philanthropy world and this reinforcing loop. Um,
4: but it's not just you. We need to be there with you. I appreciate that. We, we are a community Amer- of Americans that you know, somehow we're, we're, we're becoming a little too fractured at different, for, different, for just stupid reasons. We really have to understand that you know, the rest of the world looks to us to provide leadership and a moral compass that is that is true and 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 frankly is is comprehensive about you know being a human on this planet and we we have to seize that as a true responsibility and and make sure we exhibit that through all our actions and our deeds and most importantly the way we treat each other and by demonstrating that i think you know we can get Again, not that the rest of the world is because a lot of folks in the world are saying no. We're we're now exceeding you all in terms of having a true moral compass. But I think those are the things that will give us uh, really the mantle of you know leaders on this planet with the right intention and purpose. So I'm I'm excited to be here with you and part of this part of this fight. Me too.
1: Um, one of the things that I think people. Uh, who, who are familiar primarily through this amazing uh, act of generosity at Morehouse, then realize that you've been doing, like, just tons of philanthropy and applying your business acumen across, you know, the, the different ends. So it's fighting cancer, it's, it's uh, donating not just all the waters, but museums, uh, wildlife conservation, you're, you're, the, um, you're the chairman of the board at Carnegie, um, Carnegie Hall. Um, what are the lessons that you bring as this the like just amazingly successful businessman and entrepreneur to philanthropy that's in addition to the pay it forward, in addition to the talent and inclusiveness, what are the other things that you think people should think about?
4: Sure. That, that's a great question. You know, I, I spend time with, with one of my, my partners, you know, Brian Sheth, and we talk about what is it that we really can do besides, we've been doing this for, you know, donate money. And what we're really good at is donating intellectual capacity organizational skills and, you know, sometimes motivation, right? But I think the most important thing that we can do is bring some of the things that we've learned in businesses and, and, and saying, how do we make a more efficient and sustainable philanthropic thrusts in all the things that are important to us and do it in ways that not only change the nature of, you know, the the mission that we're we're going against, but actually enables the people who are fulfilling that mission to expand their capacity. Again, that whole training pyramid. I think that's really the lesson that that we've learned, and I know that I've personally learned, is it isn't just the money or the time. It is bringing organizational capacity to inspire others to expand their philanthropic impact. You know, that sustainability... At scale is, I think, the right way to really think about, you know, philanthropy today. So, um,
1: absolutely. So, last, uh, question for this, this part of it. Um, enormous amount of adversity, uh, driving forward, and yet you're still fundamentally driven by optimism. Yeah. Say a few sentences about that.
4: <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I think, uh, maybe it is, uh, I, I think when you grow up in a community like, like I did, uh, we were always looking for, you know, I call it my community, you know, the, reaching the American dream. And, you know, many of my, my parents, my parents' friends, they knew they weren't going to achieve it in their lifetimes, and but they knew they had to work hard to enable me and my generation to, to hopefully achieve it. And so yeah, I know it's my role to ensure that there is no you know, revision, you know, the, you know, Skip Gates wrote a beautiful article uh, today, I think it's Sunday today, because I've been traveling forever, but uh, in in the New York Times, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, and this whole idea about, you know, the reformers came and said, you know, they wanted to change, and the, the, the word reformers is, is, is misleading because what they wanted to do was kind of revert back to the mean after reconstruction, and they were effective at that, and so what you realize is you have to constantly apply the pressure forward to make a more just society a society that, that we want our children to live in, that, that gives them the opportunity to be who they want to be and to contribute in society in very positive ways. and. As you all know, there's nothing more beautiful than a, than a harmonious society. Nobody wants to live in discordant society with anger and 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 fear and hatred and all that. That's no fun for anyone. Uh, it just takes too much energy. But you know, if you're able to, to to bend that, call it that arc of you know humanity a little more towards justice, as 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 Dr. King said, I think that is that is really where we all want to be. And you know, you like I travel all around the world, and when you have the wonderful conversations with people. They have that same desire. They have that same goal. They may have different pressures that are, that are you know, bending it in ways that they're not comfortable with, but I think we just have to continue with the optimism and the actions that we know are going to actually you know, flex it in the right direction. Absolutely.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Robert. That was awesome. As we've seen throughout the evening, Robert is a perfect example of a great founder with a second purpose, something outside his main business that he's trying to get done in the world. For Robert... It's equalizing opportunity and liberating human potential. So everyone can contribute to business and to the world at the top of their talent. Your second purpose doesn't need to be as massive as Robert's, but it should be significant and close to your heart. You probably already know what your hidden mission is. The challenge is finding a way to nestle it in the Trojan horse of your company or your career as the two are self-reinforcing. Robert, any final thoughts?
4: I'm glad you asked. Um, I was thinking about this. You know, one of the most important things that everyone can do is not only enable their second purpose to live by speaking it and organizing around it, but to challenge yourself to drive it to scale. So beyond... You know, many of us say, oh, here's my goal, here's my mission, and that's what I can continue. You actually have more capacity than you probably think or give your, yourself credit for. So make sure you give that, yourself that additional challenge. Uh, if I'm going to do this, how do I do, now do it at scale? And believe it or not, it isn't always accomplished through more money. It's often better organizational design and the thoughtfulness about your skill set and leveraging your skill set. And so I would, I would just encourage everyone to be m- more thoughtfully creative and intentional about making these changes, expanding your, your, your second purpose and giving it light and air and liberating, liberating your human capacity and your human spirit in that way, and do it at scale.
1: Before we bring the show to its close, I hope you'll subscribe to the Master of the Scale podcast. I wanna thank you, Robert, and thank you also, Sir Ken Robinson, Thanks to our producers, to our sponsor, Thought Exchange, and thanks to all of you for joining us. You've been a great audience. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. This episode was recorded live and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Produced by the entire team at Wait What, including Christina Gonzalez, Adam Heiner, Timothy Lou Lee, Chris McLeod, Jordan McLeod, Emily McManus, Jay Punjabi, Sarah Sandman, and Adam Skuse. Stage production by Kerry Kennedy, Todd Clark, and Christopher Wren. Music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh. Alicia Schreiber, David Sanford, Bob Safian, and Saida Sepieva. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.
3: Masters of scale. Hey, Masters of Scale.
1: And now...
0: Capital One business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact, from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit capitalone.com/businesshub. That's capitalone.com/businesshub.:
4: All right. Love it, love it. Better be Rocket Man. love it, cool.
3: <laughs> His name is Robert Smith. Can you hear? A Cornell alum a few years back And he's gonna be a chemical engineer Who invents the fresh path. If y'all know it, sing along He goes on to claim some patents like For the coffee space But that's not all he wants He wants from life Come on y'all, we know y'all know it So sing along And he decides he won't wait a long, long time To scale a business that can be sublime He goes to business school but that's not all Oh, no, he's the Robert Man yeah. Robert Man Goes to work at Goldman Sachs, he did Robert Man And he decides he won't wait a long, long time To scale a business that can be sublime He's not just an investor ordinary. Oh, no, no He's a Robert Man Kind of place to change the world In fact it's cold as hell And there's only one thing Robert could do as a story unfurls Tell me more Oh I'ma tell you And so he launched Vista You understand It's more than a job five days a week. Oh, Robert Man, he's the Robert Man. Come on, y'all. Y'all ain't singing. We need to hear y'all in this. And he decides he won't wait a long, long time to scale a business that could be sublime. He's not just an investor.